Welcome everyone. We're about to begin Bezaz Hashem, Bais Panimi, joint shear number six. We're going to continue um, talking about four habits of joy-filled marriages that we started to talk about last week. And um, to understand this and to practice this will be tremendous value uh, to both husbands and wives and the truth is, in life in general, there's a lot of the concepts here that would be help and helped gratefully in the chinech habonav in the way you educate your children to practice some of these healthy aspects that will have them thrive tremendously. So, the way you need to imagine this is, imagine you have a switch in the back of your neck. And when you switch it on, you have a relationship circuitry which allows you to stay anchored and present and what's and and remembering what's important about your relationship even when things get hard even when things get hard that's when that switch is on when you turn that switch off that circuit shuts down and when that happens you lose your ability to live with simcha the people that are close to you become problems to solve rather than the people that you love. And why does this happen? This happens scientifically because the right side of the brain contains the emotional relationship circuitry. And when those circuits are on, you are relational, you act like yourself, and you return to the inner simcha after having an upsetting emotion. And it gives you the ability to endure hardships as well. The left side of the brain focuses on problem solving and talking about problems. That's why sometimes for some people, when you talk about problems, it amplifies the pain rather than solving the pain. So that idea, though, to learn how to turn, keep that switch on to be relational is a very important thing to do. One way to learn this in activating is, is honestly, when you listen to the shiurim in the main shear of five love languages, or to read Gary Chapman's book on the five love languages. That is a way, learning about that and practicing it, is the way to keep that switch on. To keep you focused and anchored in understanding what your relationship really means and what it is, even when things get difficult. Eye contact is very important. And when the relationship part of the brain shuts down, things become bigger, problems become bigger in a relationship. And when you make eye contact, that's a sign that you could have a, you know, that the relationship thing is on. And that is a way very often that could be helpful, a physical trigger of trying to work to access that relationship aspect is to make that eye contact in an objective, positive way to try your best to look warmly at your wife, at your husband, and that will remind you and trigger you to be more relationship-oriented and to um, focus on the kindness and appreciation and being curious about your spouse. The author of this book writes that he had one major, major fight with his wife. And right after he had that major fight with his wife, he shut down relationship. He stopped talking. He withdrew. He went into another room. And 
what happens is, is he noticed this himself, is when you shut down and you retreat because you were hurt, you were upset, whatever, you create a storyline. She, He realized he was creating storylines in his head to justify that his wife was the source of all of his problems. Now, the truth is, is that there's usually the truth somewhere in the middle. When a husband and wife gets into an argument, uh, and it gets into a major argument, very often they both know that they overreacted to a certain degree after a while they realize that. Okay, so it's usually a two-way street when these things happen, although it could be sometimes more one-sided than the other, but in general, each one usually has some valid points when they're having this disagreement. But what happens is, is when you have this major meltdown of a real, real big major argument, and then you retreat and withdraw, then you, your brain, as a protective mechanism, defensive mechanism, says to yourself, my wife is the source of all my problems, or my husband is the source of all my problems. You try to fit a narrative in which is totally false. And what happened is, is that at some point, it was the strangest thing he experienced he thinks it was God, <laughs> but a new thought came into his head that popped into his head. As he was having these racing thoughts about my one life is miserable, I came to the conclusion because of my wife. A thought popped into his head, be careful, she's precious, she's good, she's fragile, and if you keep acting this way, you're going to break her, and, you, and don't break her. It was a new machshava that popped into his, his head. He didn't know where it came from. And it, 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 it like came like a picture to him, like a delicate china teacup. And he realized the significance of that metaphor. That that was what we spoke last week about a fear-based bonding when you have those negative narratives. And this woke him up. It was like a wake-up call. Now, in order to understand how to develop this inner simcha, and why sometimes it's so hard to have it, and what to do to obtain it, we need to understand the common obstacles that hold us back from sharing an inner joy and sharing joy with another person or with your husband and your wife. What's holding you back? What is the causes that holds you back from experiencing that joy? The first thing that holds back the joy is, he calls it the button dance, but it's basically the bad habit that husbands and wives both get into of pushing each other's buttons. Knowing where the emotional vulnerability or pain is in your spouse, in your husband or your wife, and you, as a protective measure, you hit that spot, that sensitive spot. It's like, you know, when the de- dentist is trying to figure out where the nerve is or the cavity is, and it hits that sensitive spot where, where it hurts. For a dentist, it's a good thing. You know, he has to get rid of that cavity. But to do that to your wife or your husband is not a good thing. There are many other healthier ways to get to handle those sensitive spots. But prodding it and sticking it and pushing it and manipulating to get to that, which is called pushing buttons, basically, is very, very unhealthy. So that's what happens sometimes. When you push your husband's buttons or your wife's buttons, and you don't even realize sometimes that you're doing it, But if you hit it, then all of a sudden you get a flow of fury, of anger, that they blow up at you, and then you wonder, like, what happened? What just happened? 
You may not even hop. You may not even realize that you touched a very sensitive nerve. And that's the importance of trying to learn about your husband and your wife so you understand where those sensitive areas are so you don't push each other's buttons. The more you push each other's buttons, the more fear you'll have in your marriage, the more manipulation, the more that you'll drive each other apart, meaning that the husband will say, I have a vulnerable part about myself that I know my wife knows it too. And every time I do something, I try to work on myself, I do something wrong and I try to fix it, but my wife's upset at me, she'll dig into that sensitive point, that button that really hurts. And the other way around, same thing. The wife has that soft spot that, that's very sensitive. Husband knows about it. And when he's frustrated, instead of just explaining normally and healthily what he's upset about, he'll go for that button and he'll hit, hit it and it'll trigger his wife, hit that button and cause tremendous amount of emotional pain. And that is one of the big things that holds back intimacy in a marriage, love in a marriage. So it's very, very important. This is the difference between people who married for 50 years or more, um, but don't have a intimacy. Because their button dance of pushing each other's buttons, doing that, caused them to separate from one another emotionally. So that's one thing, not to push each other's buttons and not to do things like that that would cause a big uh, uh, emotional distance between the two of you. A second thing that holds back inner simcha is the fear mapping, what he calls it. It's a term that refers to the habit we develop of looking for problems in our environment to fix instead of looking for blessings to appreciate. We talked about in the previous year that the brain can form two types of attachment. There's a joy bond and there's a fear bond. A joy bond is an attachment to someone in which we feel secure and loved. A fear bond is an attachment in which we are never quite sure where we stand with the other person. We always feel that the rug will be pulled underneath us. We don't feel secure. We don't feel safe. People who grow up with these fear bonds, meaning they don't have secure, healthy attachments, they view the whole world with a fear map. The whole world is a very, very scary place. And they train their brain to look at whatever is the scariest in their environment. Now, here is where it's very interesting. In Mesilis Yisharim, it talks about Zahiras being careful, and he talks about Zerizus, about being alacrity, you know, uh, with alacrity and Zerizus. And he said a fascinating point there. He said, wait a minute. You know, one thing he said over there is that when you are lazy, that's why you become fearful of all these things that happen in the world, because you're lazy. And, but then he asked the question to Masilis Yisharim, but wait a minute, there are real dangers in the world that you really need to be careful about. There are things indeed to fear in the world. And he brings down a general guidance of something called Hecha Deshricha Hezekashani, you know. You know, if you have to go to a business uh, trip in Saudi Arabia, so it makes sense why you'd be a little nervous. You're walking down the street in a, in, a, in a relatively generally safe neighborhood, 
and you don't want to go to shul because something pops into your brain, something will happen, that's laziness talking. So you need to know, yes, when and not. But with a husband and wife, when we're dealing with good, normal, functional people, even if they're flawed people, they need to learn to trust each other, even with their flaws, to make their, they realize that they're safe. They need to behave in a way that makes their partner feel safe. And they need to look at the world overall in a way that feels safe. That doesn't mean you're naive when you're in the business world. It doesn't mean that you let yourself be conned into things. It doesn't mean that you fall into traps that could hurt you. Halila, of course you have to be uh, you know, not naive and with it and observe people who try to scam, people who are trying to hurt you. That's, that makes a lot of sense, especially in our generation. So we're not talking about not being, being naive. You have to be cautious and alert. But nevertheless, overall, when you're interacting with people, you, you have a radar that watches for these signs. But at the same time, overall, the initial thing is, I'll give the assumption that he's a decent person and I'll treat him with respect, not with fear. And that is very, very important. In marriage especially. And John Gottman talks about, in his books in marriage, habits that differentiate between what he calls master marriages and disaster marriages. What is a master marriage? A master marriage is a marriage of what he views something a marriage that's still healthy for six years. And again, don't worry about it. Any of you who feel that your marriages right now are in an unhealthy place, you could start now, listen to the love language shiurim, the needs shiurim, and the John Gottman shiurim when you get to it. It'll come up in the later shiurim, will come up a little later, but you'll get to it and listen to those specifically. Very important. And you could start from now. And you'll have a six-year period, and then you know you have a master wonderful marriage. And they're characterized by these four habits that are mentioned in this book that I'm talking to you about now that we're going to discuss at length. They joy-bonded. They learn to develop a habit of appreciation. They learn to enter each other's joy. In other words, if I, husband, I'm not excited generally about a wife going to a book club and enjoying her books. I'm not a big reader. My wife's a big reader. She loves books. She loves book clubs. I don't really care for books and I don't care for literature. She loves it. So, but the husband, if he's a smart person... He's not just going to say, okay, that's nice, and continue to watch his TV, or that's nice, or continue to even looking in his safer. He enters into conversation and enters his wife's joy about her book club. What's the worst thing that will happen? You'll know a little bit about Charles Dickens, about Wilkie Collins, about uh, Jane Austen, you know, whatever it is, these ideas you have, that you never know may help you in life some, at some point in some way. But even if that never happens... The bottom line is, is you will, even if you have zero interest of those subjects, you will, if you learn this habit, you will develop a special sipaka nefesh and nachas and joy by sharing in your wife's joy of her book club, of her, of her making challah things. You're not involved in her challah, uh, you know, uh, groups that she does or that she organizes. You're not there then. But if she shares it with you, you develop an interest in it. Not just because intellectually, oh, it's a mitzvah of challah, but because your wife is thriving with it. If your wife thrives with it, 
you thrive with it. I gave an example that way, but it goes the other way around too, obviously. When the husband has an excitement about a particular thing that he enjoys doing, that the wife has absolutely zero interest in. But the same thing applies. If it's a genuine, healthy joy, you show interest. Not just that's nice. You show interest. And that develops the connection. That promotes the love and the joy between the couple. Here's a secular example he brings down. And we could extrapolate it for our more ruchniistic endeavors in our, in our lives, in our culture. But here, listen to this, though. In one marriage I know, the author says here, the wife saw how much her husband loved NASCAR. NASCAR is the speed racing, the races with these speed cars. And the wife decided to enter into that with him. Even though she didn't know anything about NASCAR. She actually bought the book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to NASCAR. You know, you have these dummy books and idiot books. I think they're great, Agav, but let's put that to the side. She took out a book, The History of NASCAR. She had no interest, zero interest in NASCAR. She bought that idiot's book to NASCAR. She bought The History of NASCAR, read it before they attended their first race together. And then she realized it was a lot of fun for her as she began to realize the more about the history of the sport uh, than most of the diehard fans surrounding them, she knew more now than them. And it wasn't a one-way street either. Her husband watched, she liked watching on shows. There's a show on TV called HGTV. It's about house improvements. Um, because his wife loves these shows about improvements of houses and flipping houses and the cost of houses and renovations of houses. And again, he had zero interest in it. But he developed it, that sphere of interest. And, um, and that helped that joy gap in the marriage. There's more to say on this, but uh, maybe someone will say more about the subject, but this is a very, very important aside. So this is very, very important. Now, it could be sometimes when you have zero interest on a subject and you get involved in your wife's world or your husband's world about the subject, it's not like you'll ever enjoy it. You may dislike it. You'll always dislike it. Sometimes it'll happen. You'll develop a a sort of a mild interest towards it, like this wife who started to enjoy NASCAR somewhat or this husband who had zero interest in house improvements started to have at least a mild interest in house improvements as he's sharing in his wife's love of of those things. But even if you didn't, you're tremendously accomplishing beautiful things by doing that. And in some marriages, though, unfortunately, these habits of appreciation and sharing joy, they don't develop, and therefore resentment takes its place, and fear takes its place, and it grows into unhealthy habits of avoiding, you know, I'm busy texting, I'm busy watching TV, or I'm even busy going to Night Seder. It's a sensitive topic, which I didn't discuss yet much, but but I will, because Tamatera Kineget Kulam, but very often, husbands use that Talmud Torah as an escape mechanism to avoid the chiyuvim of what he needs to do for his wife in his home. It's a very, very sensitive sub- subject, but it's a very, very important one and it deserves a separate shear, which we're not going to get into now. But this is a very important thing. People use Torah as an escape mechanism.
Gedoyle Yisrael do not do that. They invest emotionally, physically, sexually even, towards whatever their wife needs. And they don't use Torah as a way of escaping from it. I'll give you one more muscle that's very important about this type of avoidance that people do sometimes. Is, for example, is if a person is an employer by somebody or an employee, it makes no difference. But let's give an example of an employee. employee. Sometimes this employee knows that he has responsibilities for his employer that he's not really doing, that he's to do these things and he's not doing them. But what he does instead, you know, whenever the boss gets angry at him, why are you doing this, why are you doing that, why are you doing this, or he's spending, wasting too much time, and this and that. But he justifies himself, so he says this phrase, I don't work for my boss, I work for the Rabbi Shalom. It sounds beautiful, it sounds like you have a tremendous amount of betachin. But in reality, what you're doing is, is you're using your quote-unquote betachin line to escape the chiyuvim that the Torah does place on you that you need to do. The same thing applies with a husband with his learning. Yes, he needs to learn and do as much as he can. And if his wife supports it, beautiful. But if there's things that have to be addressed or things that need to be taken care of and you run away into your taira, it's an escape mechanism for many and it's very, very unhealthy. And that's a separate subject that we're going to talk about a different time. So the idea being, and we're going to be Messiah over here, that if you want a joy-filled marriage, you have to build those habits. Habits are very, very powerful. They actually give paths into your brain, into having that positive thing, and it will rewire. It mamish will rewire. Now, it's more difficult when you're severely addicted to something. It's a much heavier workload to do, but it is doable. And with help, with therapy, 12 steps, you could overcome even the most severest addictions as people have done. They can't do it on their own. They're mavatal to a higher power and they have sponsors and they need that help, but they are actually creating new pathways in their brain to, you know, to circumvent that addictive thing. But especially if it's not a severe addiction, let's say uh, you, know, you want to go now without coffee, or without sugar, or without alcohol for 30 days. Usually 30 days breaks that brain's craving for a hit. And if your new habit extends 60 days, 90 days, new pathways in the brain get formed, new habits are established that override the old habits. So if you could be a sugar addict for even years, and it's murder, the first month it's extremely difficult. And even two months, three months, and sometimes you feel people who have given up smoking for even 20 years admit sometimes they still have a little bit of that pull. So it's not like it's, you know, never existing, but very, more easily than not, believe it or not, it is doable to have new pathways in your brain that override those unhealthy pathways. So I'm encouraging all of you this could apply and does apply to all of your marriages as well. No matter how it looked till now, whatever you weren't happy with, if you create new pathways, new habits, and you start from today, and you don't give up, and you take baby steps, little by little, and you do it, it could change your whole mahalach, achayim. It could change your whole habit. 
the whole forming of habits in a tremendous way. And it's doable and it could be done. We'll continue, Bessas Hashem, in the next year. Hatzlochem Bracha.